Please pray with me. God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Why do some people stop believing in God? People stop believing in God when they are exposed to other religions and cultures. People stop believing in God when they are exposed to science. People stop believing in God as they become more educated. Now, I don't believe any of that. Every statement I just made is a statement I would vehemently oppose. I took each one of those statements from a conversation I watched online by way of Facebook. One friend posted an article from Salon.com titled, Why Doesn't Everyone Believe in God? The Skeptical Brain May Hold the Answer. Another friend added a comment volunteering her opinion that people stop believing in God when they are exposed to other religions and cultures other than what they grew up with. And the conversation went on from there, commenting back and forth, people making each of the statements I just repeated in opening my sermon. As many of you have already heard in recent weeks, I decided to take my sermon topics this summer from some of the spirited conversations I hear taking place in the public arena. All around us, there are conversations taking place that relate to faith or spirituality. Many of these conversations take place on social media. One such conversation is the conversation I witnessed on Facebook about what causes people to stop believing in God. Part of my hope in engaging this kind of conversation is that it might spark your thinking, might help you think about how you would engage similar conversations when you hear your friends or family raising topics of spirituality or faith. Because I think it's good for us to engage these conversations, good not to shy away from these conversations. But that doesn't mean it's easy to do. It isn't always easy to figure out how to join the conversation when the media or people around us are talking about matters of faith or spirituality in ways that don't fit our understanding or experience. How did we get to this place in our society? This place where we find ourselves today. This place where so many people seem to have latched on to the idea that questions and faith don't go together. How do we find ourselves here in a situation where all around us there are people who have the idea that thinking and faith don't go together? That using our brains is not something religious people do. How did we get into this situation where some people believe that exposure to ideas, exposure to different religions or cultures, exposure to science 
are likely to lead to the end of religious belief. I think we got here because we religious people have been speaking in tongues. Of course, I'm using that as a metaphor, so let me explain. In his first letter to the church in Corinth, Paul has a lot to say about the practice of speaking in tongues. It's a little bit hard to reconstruct now, these many centuries later, what exactly that practice looked like. But the clues in Paul's letters tell us a few things. Speaking in tongues was considered a gift of the Spirit. Speaking in tongues was speech that could not be understood in the ordinary way. It didn't sound the way we sound when we talk to one another using words that we both understand. And because the things a person said when they were speaking in tongues could not be understood in the normal way, an interpreter was required. This interpreter would be a second person who was also given a gift of the Spirit. This person's gift was the ability to explain to the community as a whole what the message was in those incoherent syllables of the person speaking in tongues. And in that context, they would have believed that legitimate speaking in tongues contained a message from God. So that's what the community would hear from the interpreter. Paul's letters always give us only one side of a conversation, so we use what Paul says to guess at what was going on in the communities he was writing to. In this case, the practice of speaking in tongues was causing problems. Paul wants to address these problems. There are at least two issues at stake. One is the issue of making sense. Paul refers several times to the need for this person who can interpret. He suggests that having an interpreter is a requirement for speaking in tongues to be practiced in a church or permitted in a church. Why is this so important? Paul would argue that it does no one any good if things are said in church that people don't understand, things that sound like nonsense. The corrective Paul offers to this risk of offering nonsense in church is to engage our minds. He offers this caution about speaking in tongues. He says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unproductive. Coming from Paul, this is a criticism. Yes, he wants our spirits engaged. He talks about that in all kinds of ways in many of his writings. But he wants our minds engaged too. He, says, he goes on to say, What should I do then? I will pray with the spirit, but I will pray with the mind also. I will sing praise with the spirit but I will sing praise with the mind also. And in a final strong statement, he says, In church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So the first issue Paul has with speaking in tongues is whether it makes sense. And the second issue is related to the first. The second issue is how speaking in tongues impacts outsiders. 
if we continue reading this letter to the Corinthians and go beyond the passage we heard this morning, we come upon this. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your mind? He wanted the church in Corinth to understand the risk of continuing this practice of speaking in tongues. Outsiders or unbelievers will think they are out of their mind. So maybe this is not so different from where we find ourselves in 2015, where some outsiders or unbelievers hear religious talk that frankly makes no sense, and they think we are out of our mind. And this leads to a place where well-meaning people say things like, people stop believing in God when they're exposed to other religions and cultures, or people stop believing in God when they are exposed to science, or people stop believing in God as they become more educated. They have heard us speaking in tongues, and these are the conclusions they reach. So here, when I use speaking in tongues as a metaphor, my point is that it is true that in the Christian tradition, we have ways of talking about God and faith that do not easily make sense. We find these things in the central creeds of the church, like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. We find these things that do not easily make sense in the statements of doctrine that some churches hold as central to what it means to be Christian, adhering to particular doctrines like the virgin birth, or like that God offered his beloved son to be killed as a sacrifice for human sin, or like that God is Trinity, three in one, and yet we can't quite explain that. We say things sometimes that do not easily make sense, and we don't always have an interpreter. Some branches of the Christian community have decided that faith means strictly believing in every creed and every doctrine that the church has decided are important, literally and word for word. In this approach to faith, we do see conflicts come up between thinking and believing. Over and over again, we hear the stories of people raised with strict requirements for what they are asked to believe, who find themselves later in conflict with their faith when some of those beliefs start to not make sense. But strictly believing in prescribed doctrines is only one approach to religion or to spirituality, only one approach to Christianity. And in this church, many of us are here precisely because that is not an approach that would work for us. Like Paul speaking to the people in the church in Corinth, we are convinced that our spirits and our minds must be simultaneously engaged in this thing we call faith, this thing we call religion. So to these people who say, who, who really believe that becoming more educated makes a person less faithful, here's what I would say. I would say, hold on a minute. Let's look 
at the particulars of those religious teachings that do not hold up to education or to science or to questions and differences. And let's be clear that that is only one way to be religious. And let me tell you about another way, a way of having faith that fits with intellect like a hand in glove. It's up to us to have a robust faith that can respond to these questions. And a part of this is that we ourselves have to stop being literalists. Now, I imagine that many of you hear that and you're thinking, well, I'm not a literalist. I don't take the Bible or the traditional Christian doctrines literally. But the truth is that if you reject some of what you find in the Bible because you do not believe it is literally true, then you are buying in to the myth that a narrow definition of literal truth is the criteria we ought to use. If you reject elements of the traditional Christian creeds or doctrines because you do not believe they are literally true, then you are indirectly supporting the myth that a narrow definition of literal truth is the criteria we use. I would like to suggest that a narrow definition of literal truth is not the criteria at all. In fact, that it's not particularly relevant to our faith or our spiritual lives one way or the other. If we say together what I believe to be true, that God is vast and never entirely knowable, then we no longer spend our time quibbling over disputable facts. If we say together what I believe to be true, that God is beyond the limits of human understanding, then no particular understanding will be a stumbling block to our faith. I believe that God's nature and action are something of a mystery. I believe that our human hearts and minds are not quite adequate for the awesome task of understanding this one we call God. And because I believe that God is not entirely knowable, I believe that all honest theology is agnostic. I've said that before. Agnostic means without knowledge or not knowing. When we make theological assertions, we are expressing our deep convictions. We are making our best guesses, and guesses that are informed by a variety of sources and resources. I believe that sincere faith demands that we draw upon reason and experience, as well as scripture and tradition, as some of those sources and resources. But when it comes down to it, our theological convictions are still guesses. That's part of being human. And these are things we work out with imagination and poetry and imagery and even emotion as much as with logical words. And I'm convinced that a faith in this great, mysterious God, who we can not quite pin down with words, 
that this kind of faith will never be diminished by hearing another person's different perspective. I am convinced that a faith in the God of mystery can never be decreased by an increase in education. I am convinced that a faith in the God of mystery can never be weakened by the discoveries of science. If we allow God to be as big as God truly is, if we acknowledge that God is bigger than our words and our logic, but might be guessed at by our imaginations and our poetry, then we have a faith that will stand strong through all of the challenges and changes of life. Then we have a faith big enough to carry us through all our personal development and our evolution and our learning. So let's not ever leave our minds out of the equation. Let's embrace and teach a faith big enough to hold the complexities of our world and the questions of our own hearts. Because of course, God is big enough to hold it all. Amen.